This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is brought to you by LifeAid, and I have subscribed to one of their products, FocusAid, for several years now, and I'm usually drinking it when I'm doing the interviews. As many of you are probably aware, there is an energy drink crisis, and most of these products are horrendous for your health. LifeAid has created a brand new holistic alternative called FitAid Energy. At only 15 calories, these drinks are full of BCAAs, turmeric, B-complex, glucosamine, and only have 200 milligrams of caffeine from green tea extract. They are naturally sweetened using products like agave nectar and come in four amazing flavors, mango sorbet, peach mandarin, blackberry pineapple, and raspberry hibiscus. And I have to say the mango one is absolutely my favorite. Now, many of nutritionists on this show have hailed the power of caffeine when used correctly. They also talk a lot about not using it closer to bedtime. So me personally, I like to use their energy drink in the morning now. And then as it goes into the afternoon time, switch to focus aid. Therefore, I'm not disrupting my circadian rhythm. Now, LifeAid is offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 30% off your first purchase with free shipping. If you go to fitaidenergy.com forward slash BTS, that's fitaidenergy.com forward slash BTS. And if you want to hear more about LifeAid and the man behind it, listen to episode 207 with the founder, Aaron Hind. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show, Ethan Supley. So in this second incredible conversation, we discuss a host of topics, including his new film, Dog, which explores veteran mental health and canine therapy, male body dysmorphia, realistic weight loss goals, identity metamorphosis, racism, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 640 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Ethan Supley. Enjoy. Well, Ethan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast. The first conversation we had was episode 332, and I just looked, and it was literally two years to the month ago that we sat down. So that was July 2020. The environment was very, very different then. You're in California, you're entering the pandemic. Now here we sit, um, July 2022. Despite the best efforts of the media, hopefully we are leaving the pandemic. <laughs> so um, first, I just want to say welcome back to the show and thank you so much for coming back on. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, yeah, 
what a weird time that was. And by the way, if if that was episode 320, what is this? How many have you done? 500? That's amazing. Um, six. This would be around the 650 mark-ish. Wow, dude. That's so awesome. So well, what happened for me when we entered the pandemic, and I'm sure you saw exactly the same thing, being you know the, the kind of health-related guests that you have so much now, I just saw so much misinformation and so much fear-mongering from both sides, let's be very clear, from from people that were given the screen time that I added an extra episode a week, which is why I've accelerated so much, um, to get these real experts on to try and at least offer some sort of library of, um, you know, educated, sensible, middle-of-the-road health professionals to counteract a lot of the BS that we were seeing on the television. Yeah, for for me, it really came down to uh, this idea that we all share the same values. And so, you know, you have somebody saying, this is the correct way to respond to anything, you know, for, for us, what we just went through was the pandemic. And so it was like, this is absolutely the correct way to respond to this pandemic. And, and for me, it was always just like, what is your, what is your, you know, if, if you're going like, um, no lives can be lost from this, then like, we basically need to stop living life as we know it, because that's like the end the end result of all life is death. There's no everlasting life. So you're never going to have this thing. And then I go like, what are the second and third order effects that are going to have, you know, unintended consequences um, where you're going to have a loss of life in other areas. And, and for me, it was just always like, you know, I unfortunately result in, and, and Jonathan Haidt speaks about this in the righteous mind. I, see through a lens of personal responsibility. That's just the way I see, you know, you go, racism is really bad in America. Okay. Yes, sure. It's very bad in America. I I do not think we're, if, if we're saying we're going to convince everybody to not be racist, this to me is a failing solution. The, the, the solution to me is how do we make racism not affect us? as individuals. And so when it became like everybody needs, you know, the first few months of the pandemic, um, I having no idea what was going on. I, I, I had kids in college on the East coast. I had kids, um, who went to a boarding school away from our home in Los Angeles. And so everybody had to come home and we battened down the hatches and nobody left for a number of months. And, and it was like, we don't know what's going on. Um, This is how we're going to choose to react to it. But when it became like, you know, everybody must, you know, there, there were times where my wife and one of my daughters were screamed at, on the streets in California because they were walking together, not six feet apart, not wearing masks outside. And it just, and to me, I'm just like, dude, if they're not near you, who cares? You know what I mean? That's where I get into like, I I, I would rather leave it up to individuals. You know, if you are, 
I could I could understand if you took the groups that were most affected by um, COVID and carved out some circumstances for them when they didn't have to be around, when they could go and do things like grocery shop, grocery shop, and they didn't have to be around the rest of the public. And you had, you know, uh, every day, a couple hours at a grocery store where it's like only for this category of people who are mostly at risk. And, and um, we're going to, we're going to really be very serious about social distancing and all of that. But when it's just like everybody has to behave this way based on somebody's calculations, I go, that's that's coming from some value system that I don't necessarily share. And so it doesn't really make sense to me that we all have to react in the same way. So when I get into like um, when I would hear stuff that like, you know, this person said something and it's patently false. I don't care if it's false. I don't care what is being said that's true there's this idea that we must all behave in the same way and that to me does not align with my principles well before we get to the underlying health element you touched on something and i wanted to talk about it and you just gave me a great segue and that's racism in america so this last couple of years you know i'm a firefighter obviously my brothers and sisters in blue are very near and dear to me as well in the law enforcement of which there are some shitbags in that profession but most of whom are incredible human beings but you kind of have an interesting lens in the roles that you portrayed so you were louis in remember the titans who literally was i think how most people are like i love your music it's amazing you happen to have a different skin pigmentation it's totally irrelevant why is everyone arguing and then conversely, you had American History X, which again was a, a, such a powerful film, but I think underlined also the the true minority that is that kind of extremism as well. So what has been your perspective? I know it wasn't so much lived, it was portraying, but regardless, you were around that kind of storytelling and that philosophy. What has been your lens of that issue this last couple of years? You know, look, I, I grew up listening to ska music and was a very anti-racist person when I was a teenager. Not that I'm not anti-racist now. I, I'm, I am anti-racist. I grew up just feel, it. <laughs> no, Right. No, I, I just feel like the what it was when I was a kid was down in Orange County there are dudes with swastika tattoos that are having rallies that are, you know, beating up ethnic shop owners. Fuck them. That's what it was. You know, you had this enemy that was like, yeah, we're fucking racist. I'm sorry. I'm swearing a lot now. No, no trust me. That's why I have an E on my podcast. <laughs> okay. So like um, now when racism is this very ambiguous thing that you have simply because of the color of your skin. I go like, what, what is this, this, how do we fight this? So now it, it, it it's, it's too muddied. Everything's racist that um, doesn't align with certain principles of a few authors. Um, and, and that to me is uh, an unsolvable situation. So, I'm interested in stuff that, you know, I can solve personally. And and if it's like 
this idea that society is bad and we need to make society good. I'm uninterested in that because I don't, I don't, I, first of all, I don't think society is bad. Number one, I have a lot of faith in humanity. I think the majority of the people I interact with are such good, wonderful people. And yeah, then there's some dirtbags. Those dirtbags are going to be dirtbags no matter what. So, you know, I have four daughters. Me too happens. Great. I certainly want less rape and sexual predation because I have four daughters. I have a vested interest in this. I do not believe any amount of regulations or laws is going to eliminate that. So for me as a father, I got to go, what can they do? What can I teach them to do to stay out of situations that could become hairy and to grab a dude's nuts and claw out his eyes and to give emphatic nose. And because I don't trust all these boys and I don't trust all these boys, regardless of me too. And regardless of how society's standards are shifting, I just don't. Um, for the most part, I think the, the young men are well-intended, hopefully. And then for the ones that aren't, they're going to be uh, bad intended no matter what. And so I, I think these two things, um, I think of them in very similar ways. I, I just think there's going to be bad people no matter what. And I don't think that we're going to convince those people to be good because we all suddenly decide one day of there's a new way to be good. Does that make sense? Oh, it does completely. And I think, you know, what I got from, I guess, you know, the subtext of uh, Remember the Titans, and it was definitely more obviously told in American History X, was the importance of parenting, the importance of mentorship. Each one of these, I always refer to, think about a kindergarten. None of those are racists and homeless and addicts and prostitutes and gangbangers until we turn them into that. So it can begin at home. And the moment that you create this black and white, I mean, I'm talking, you know, metaphorically, uh, these two sides, and then you want to cancel one, you've removed any conversation of ownership, of, of, of healing, of growth, of all these actual conversations that need to happen to steer away a child that maybe went down, you know, the gang culture route. And maybe instead they became an incredible human being, a teacher, a doctor, who knows, just by, beginning at the home. And then if that failed, the schools and the mentorship around them, catching them when they fell. Yeah. The, the other thing that I, you know, and, and look, maybe I'm a boomer at this point, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just an old man. I do have this thing where like, you know, when you realize that there's far more of pop culture that you're completely unfamiliar with, like your kids will start referencing people and you're like, who are you talking about? And they're like, oh, they're the most famous person ever. And you've never heard of them. So I am suffering from that. And I can recognize that. But as a kid, the urge was towards seeing people as people and, and stripping away these boundaries of, of differences and getting rid of stereotypes and, um, and, you know, judging people based on their actions and not their physical attributes like that to me was anti-racist. And now the anti-racist movement seems to have more and more this idea of essentialism within it, this idea of um, inherited badness from one group and, um, and it, it, it's pushing uh, differences and it's pushing um, 
acknowledging uh, it's it's pushing the hell out of certain stereotypes, but it, it seems to be wanting to divide instead of wanting to unite. And for me, ending racism was a, a, un, a uniting prospect when when I was a kid. And that's still how I like to think of it. Um, you know, this guy who's been on Joe Rogan, I'm blanking on his name, but he's uh, he's a musician and he goes around and he like converts Klansmen. That to me is a beautiful thing. Like, I, I just think like, yeah, you 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 educate this guy and you teach him about how like all these preconceived notions that he has about some other group are false or there's holes in his ideas and and he's wrong and you get him out of this this um sense of hate and this sense of anger into this sense of love and compassion and empathy that to me is beautiful i don't know why there's this bent towards uh demonizing groups of people based on the color of their skin today i don't know why there's this idea of um you know, and, and, and that's not to say that everything's perfect. I don't believe that everything's perfect. I think there's a hell of a lot that could be improved upon, but I don't believe that the solution is to segregate groups and recognize them as these skin colors. Like that to me is not the solution. Yeah, well, Dr. King didn't stand in front of all those people and say, I have a dream that we pigeonhole people based on pigmentation, religion, and sexual orientation. Yeah. It, 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 to, it, to me, it's a losing proposition. It's it's um, a regression and not a progression, which, you know, I think that group fancies itself progressives. And I, I see a sliding back of morals and a sliding back of these things that I thought we were winning. You know what I mean? Like American History X, to me, you couldn't make that movie today. You really couldn't make that movie. You couldn't use that language to make a movie to expose people that really were like that and probably and are they're certainly not gone those people exist and yet you can't you can't uh, graphically expose them today because language is demonized so it's a really bizarre place we find ourselves in and, and you know i say all this and i imagine you know, what my parents thought of me when I had a green mohawk at 13, you know what I mean? Like they were probably as equally perplexed at the way society was evolving as I am today. I heard Joe Rogan, I forget who was his guest. Maybe, maybe it was, um, uh, oh my goodness. What, I, Daryl Gates is, I think his name. That Am was I the wrong? one that, yeah, that was the one that converted the KKK. It was uh, Robert Downey Jr. So I was blanking because they made a comment that Tropic Thunder couldn't be made today. Right. And the irony is, and I actually dressed up as him on Halloween once and people were like pseudo shocked. I'm like, the joke is, this is how racist Hollywood used to be that Bruce Lee <laughs> lost to Carradine because he was too Asian to play in Kung yeah. Fu. This is, yeah. this is a thing. And, and you're canceling the very thing that actually is, like you said, the progression, the, the metamorphosis against that old world, you know, racism to this, you know, much more integrated, open-minded philosophy that most of us had. And then all of a sudden, this freaking hammer comes down. And and again, like you said, I think you look at most people, and I, I've been doing this recently, look at the grocery store. Look how nice people are to the checkout people. Go to a restaurant. 
The world is not full of Karens, despite your Instagram feed. The world is full of mainly nice people, and the Karens are the extreme left, the extreme right, you know, the the entitled few. The the middle eighty percent are actually putting their head down, trying to clothe and feed their children, and are pretty much beautiful to each other, no matter you know what their background. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think they're they're. I'm starting to see a little bit more and more where it's still got a little bit of a sensationalism to it, which is uh, slightly nauseating to me, but like where somebody will present a scenario to somebody else and that person will do a kindness and then they'll go, you know what? I was lying. Here's a thousand bucks or here's a ticket to the big game or, you know, that's happening. So I think there is more that, that we're, we're getting some people who are like, I want to stop spreading negativity, right? Because, but in fairness, the the majority of social media is negativity and I'm not immune to it. Like those Karen videos are hilarious. Um, but like to pre- pretend every other woman at a grocery store is going to do that, you know, there's a reason why a bunch of cell phones come out when that happens and why, you know, just grocery shopping you don't see a bunch of sh- I, i've never seen that happen you know what i mean but but it's wild to see it it's just not you know i think like with anything else we we what we're seeing like this sensational stuff becomes the idea of the majority of reality and it's not it's, not, it's got nothing to do with my experience living i've seen bitchy people before um bitchy men and bitchy women and it can be uncomfortable it can be hilarious but it's rare it's very rare you know yeah absolutely well speaking of again the last couple years but a different lens now in the first conversation you know you talked openly about you know the the mental health journey the addiction element you know the weight loss um and now we enter this Without loading the question, my perspective the last two years was I kind of stood squarely in the middle. I was fine getting the vaccine. I want to go back to England and travel and see my grandmother, who is now 104. So I'm taking one for the team. If there is anything, because I want to protect her. I mean, you know, she is vulnerable. But there was zero discussion on Actually, quite the opposite. Rather than a discussion, you know, when you have this captive audience on nutrition and movement and sleep and time in nature those very healing elements were kept from people. So having seen the success yourself in what worked to get your reclaim your health again, what was your view of what was being pumped out there the last couple of years? And did, did you find it frustrating um, knowing damn well what you'd been through yourself? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I got the vaccine too, but I had to for work. I had, I had uh, a really nasty case of COVID in, um, probably just a few months after we spoke, uh, in October into November of, I guess more November because we, we had to cancel none of the kids could come home for Thanksgiving. Cause my wife and I had COVID, I had a fever for 16 days, but there was no vaccine available. So at that time, so we got it. And then, you know, a couple months later I was, uh, I was um, going to do a movie and the vaccine had, it was brand new. And they said, have you been vaccinated? And I said, no, but I just had COVID. Um, and, 
And they said, well, we would prefer it if you'd get vaccinated. And I said, okay, I mean, listen, you just got to tell me I got to do it or, or, or otherwise I'm not, I don't, I don't feel I need to because I just had COVID and they said we would prefer it. And I was like, this prefer, this is so indirect. Okay. Well, I got that. You could tell me what you prefer. I eat while I'm on set, but I'm going to eat what I deem is correct for me to eat. Um, and then there was like the next day they were like, oh, we're really sorry. Uh, you're, the dates that you gave us that you're able to work are in conflict with our shoot and this movie's going away. And we wrote, we, we, my lawyer said back to them. Um, and if he gets the vaccine, they said, well, we'll figure it out then. We'll figure out the dates. <laughs> oh my God. And so I got the vaccine and it was fine. It was like for me getting the vaccine, nothing occurred. There Same was no... Me. I felt nothing. I was like, okay, great. I don't feel that. I mean, I, if somebody doesn't want to get the vaccine, I don't give a shit if they get the vaccine or not. It does not matter to me. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that you're protecting your mom by getting the vaccine. You can still get COVID. You can still give it to her. It does seem like uh, you are less likely to get severely sick if you get it. And so therefore maybe there's some argument that you will be uh, contagious for a shorter period of time. And so in that sense, maybe, you know, but this has all become so like ethereal and like, if you do X, then Y might happen or it might not. So for me, it's like, if you want to get the vaccine, get the vaccine. I got it. I didn't want to, and I got it and it was fine. And if you don't want to get the vaccine, you know, I don't care. I, I don't care if you're 500 pounds. If you're 500 pounds and you don't want to be 500 pounds, I'm happy to talk to you and tell you what worked for me and discuss what didn't work for me and why I think it didn't work for me. But if you want to be 500 pounds, I don't care. That is one of those things where I feel like the second order effects that affect me are so ambiguous and abstract that like people are going to do what they're going to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that was the, the issue I had is that clearly what was pretty apparent apart from, again, you know, the anomalies was the less kind of intrinsic health that you had, the higher probability there was to you having an extreme reaction to, you know, the virus and or the uh, the vaccine. That's the other side of the conversation too. And therefore, you're more likely to die. As a compassionate person who spent, you know, 14 years as a firefighter and a paramedic, I didn't want people to die. So I wanted alongside the vaccine mask conversation to be a nutrition, wellness, sleep, you know, community sure. you know all these other I mean, things it all makes sense exactly. dude. But, you, but who's making money off uh, the nutrition conversation you know there's a like a weird ecosystem here where we have astoundingly poor health and an astoundingly broken medical system where more money is being spent by the government than you know the next you know x largest socialist countries combined so like Wait, we're, we're overspending the socialist countries. We're not socialist. We're paying out of pocket more than anywhere else. We're taking more pills than anywhere else. We're also dying earlier than all the countries of comparison. Like, 
people are not really trying to put forward solutions to uh, make this better. You know what I mean? I don't think. And then I get scared. Like th- there's a, 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 a vaccine mandate. What's to stop these people from waking up one day and making a calorie mandate? And then, you know, everybody's not allowed to be 500 pounds. If you're 500 pounds, that is no longer, you know, however not socially acceptable it is today, it's no longer legally acceptable, right? And and I go like, I don't think that's right. That's not right for me. That kind of pressure and humility and shame wasn't going to help me get out of the state that I was in. Um, That had to come from within me. You know what I mean? I do not think that you can get a person off of drugs until that person goes, God, I really don't want to be on drugs anymore. And then they might even still have failures after that. But that's the point where a person gets off drugs. I've, I've been sober a long time. I was a drug addict. I've seen a lot of people come and go from sobriety and I've never once seen a person talked into getting sober and then having a lasting results. It just is not part of my experience. And I would be willing to bet that the statistical data would back that up. No, I agree completely. And, you know, the, the mental health element that, you know, creates addiction, you know, the, the feeling of loneliness and depression, all these things that we know absolutely are voids that people fill with, whether it's opiates or gambling or social media, you know, overtime, whatever it is, they're pouring into that void. And I think that's the, again, the, the dichotomy or, or the irony is there are discussions on, on, you know, mandates on that side, but simultaneously, school PE programs are being dismantled. You know, we have the worst food being served at the cafeterias in school. And that's where you actually make the change. You know, we're supposed to be the first generation where our children, we might outlive our children, which is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, dude, there were uh, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell were the options for my kids in public school. So I would send, I would make them lunch and take them. And then they would be like pissed at me because they're like, all our friends are eating Pizza Hut at lunch. And, and it was literally like a, a Pizza Hut outpost at their school and a Taco Bell outpost at their school, right? I don't know how that's getting paid for, but um, like that's the level of nutrition, you know, and, and I'm sure it's not um, absolutely terrible like that, but I, but I suspect the nutrition in public schools is pretty bad. Um, my anecdotal experience with it has been awful. It's just awful. Um, and so, you know, uh, especially now, now we're, now we're knees deep in this, uh, or knee deep in this recession. And it's like, you know, if you, if you were struggling to buy healthy food and now your healthy food is way more expensive and like your alternative is to eat fast food and dollar menu stuff like that's going to be a problem for some people well i think the other excuse me the other conversation that i find a little maddening is let's take the petrol prices at the moment you know of course, people are losing their mind because it's expensive. And my wife is at med school 300 miles away. So when I go see her or when she comes home to see me, that's a very expensive trip with the tolls and everything. But again, where is the conversation of, well, how big is your vehicle? 
you focus so much on the petrol. Let's have a look at the, you know, the school bus sized vehicle that you drive yourself and your three year olds around, you know, the roads every day. Where's the discussion of, hey, have you seen other countries and what they can do with just regular sized cars or small trucks? It's amazing. They can tow things. They can, you know, you can fit six people into a station wagon. Do you need that, you know, insert overpriced <laughs> gas guzzler here but it's the same i feel with with this element you know we we looked solely at a virus and we we're totally distracted from the real root cause which is how do you make humans resilient so that if a virus comes into our atmosphere it's really not a big deal to a majority so we can pour all our resources into those vulnerable few the autoimmune disease sufferers people on chemo the elderly and the very young yeah. I mean, that's and that, again, is where I go like it. this broad brush. Everybody has to do the same thing to me just doesn't make any sense. You know, a guy could have really good results eating a, a carnivore or a ketogenic diet that I didn't have really good results with. So, like, if you're just going to do this blanket statement. But, yeah, that's an interesting conversation to have. Like people are up in arms about the price of gas and the number one car in America is a Ford F-150, which probably gets terrible. I mean, I have no idea what it gets, but that's a big car that gets terrible gas mileage, I would assume. And you go over to places like Paris where they sell gas in the liters, which is a third of a gallon, and they all have tiny, tiny little cars. Um, You know, and I don't know, you know, the gas thing, I don't, I don't drive a lot. I really don't. So it's, you know, I see the prices and I'm kind of shocked by the prices, but like, I don't have anywhere to go. I go to the gym, I go to the grocery store and I, I like to be at my house. So, so it's not something that's affecting me. And I feel bad saying that because I know a lot of people commute for work and a lot of people drive for work and it's gotta be a real uh, pain in the ass for them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just one more thing on, on the last couple of years before I can throw some different uh, questions at you. Another thing through my lens is I saw not only the absolute crippling of exercise, the ability to exercise. And again, I'm not talking about the anomalies that can literally be in solitary confinement in a prison and do burpees and stay jacked. I'm talking about the other people. You know, it. a lot of people were... It took a lot of energy to build up that discipline to go to the gym, you know, once, twice, three times a week. Um, and I feel like the air was, I mean, the, the wind was pulled from those sails. And I saw a very, very slow transition back. Like New Year's this year, all the memes came out like, oh, here comes January 1st. And then I'd ask people and they're like, no, it wasn't like that this year. And that was really sad because this is where a lot of the gyms had opened up again. So I think a lot of the the tools that people lent on for their nutrition, for their health, for their mental health were snatched away. Now, with your own journey specifically, were there any things that were that were challenging that, that kind of threatened to derail you? Yeah. I mean, to your point, I want to say I haven't seen uh, January 1st be what it was, what we think of, what the memes say it will be since January 1st, 2020. And and then it was that way for the years before that I'd been doing it, but I haven't seen it. I didn't see it in 2021 or 22. Um, and it was sad. And I, and I finally mentioned it in 22. I was like, Hey guys, I was at the gym January 1st complaining that there was nobody else there because there was nobody else. I was alone on January 1st. And I had people saying like, it's a weekend, wait till Monday. 
and giving excuses like that come Monday, it wasn't any better. Um, and like, so that's different. That's weird for me. Um, the gyms closed in LA. I worked out at home for a few months. And when I, when I got a better picture of what that virus meant to me, um, and there was a brief reopening of the gyms in July. I think it was July in Los Angeles. I was the first one back and I had two gym memberships and I was, I was going to all of them and you had to wear a mask in these gyms and it was a nightmare. Um, and it seemed very silly because at that time people were wearing, you know, bandanas as masks, which is a total performance. It's not, this is not saving anybody's life. Um, and, and so then they closed again. And when they closed again, I was like, I'm not doing this. And I found a, a, basically a speakeasy gym. And it was a gym where it was like, you know, in a warehouse in the valley full of criminals. And that's where I worked out. And I was for, for my morals, I was better off breaking that rule of um, we're closing the gym down the gyms down than I was sitting in my home and waiting for them to open again. That was a determination I made. Um, and and I, I don't mind saying that because I got COVID. By, by the way, I wound up getting COVID probably from that gym and it sucked. And guess what? I've been sick before I've gotten COVID again. It also sucked, but it was way less. And like, I've also had the flu and been really, really sick. And I've also had, um, many colds and been sick and I've had strep throat in my life. And like when I'm sick, I stay in my room. I rest. I wait until I've gotten at least 24 hours without a fever and, and my symptoms are gone. And then I reemerge. And like, that's my personal responsibility. And if I'm scared that people aren't doing that and are sick, I'm going to keep myself away from them. But this idea that we're going to magically get everybody to conform to some new ideology. I don't believe it, number one, and I don't think it's totally necessary either. No, well, I think the new normal should have been, let's focus on the 70% of Americans that are overweight and obese. Sure. That should have been the new norm, not, not masks and vaccinations. That should be, as you said, a given. If you go to Asia, if I've got this right, I lived in Japan for just over a year. When people were sick themselves, they would selflessly wear a mask not yeah. turn to everyone else and say, you need to wear one too. They would just wear one, which again, I'm not convinced having been in, you know, pre-hospital medicine and being fitted with masks to, to protect myself is not what I see is strapped to people's faces, but that's, that's another point. Right. Um, I mean, facial hair is an issue. The tightness of the mask is an issue. There's so many issues that a, like a piece of cloth is not cutting it. It's just not. So you know, and, and I don't even think that's a crazy thing to say anymore. That was a crazy thing to say maybe a year ago. Maybe yeah, a year ago, heresy. you get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Get an N90. If you're really concerned, get yourself an N95 mask, you know? Absolutely. So, so and yeah. maybe shave, right? Well, that's the thing. If you're truly, truly worried about that. But again, if you're putting that much energy, and I hope that you're also looking at how you eat and, and you're working out. And it's funny because having to literally go to a speakeasy gym during a health crisis underlines exactly the irony of the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Nah, and it, it got raided once too. And we all had to like flee out the back. And it, it was like, it was wild. And it was truly like you got buzzed in one gate and then you stood there and in this little section and they observed like, okay, do we know this? Okay. You got buzzed into another one. And it was like, you know, it was like there were roll up doors and it was very well ventilated. And it wasn't like I was in a basement somewhere sweating on people. Um, but yeah, that I was a criminal, you know, but I went every day and I, and I worked out and, um, and I, I was glad to have that, you know, and I, and I hoped it for other people too. Absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that that will continue to be that paradigm shift as much as people push back. And I think they are finally to this division. I think at least the, the sensible ones, you know, and this council culture and this, you know, pigeonholing, but also, you know, on the underlying health issue. I think people are starting to, as you said, as a white noise of this last two years kind of settles down, the f- figures in wellness are starting to rise up and even in, in politics. I mean, I'd love to get Tulsi Gabbard on here one day. She's supposed to be coming on, but uh, very, very busy. But again, middle of the road, you know, leaders who walk the walk and serve and you, you know, mean meditate. Tulsi, Tulsi Gabbard, the radically right-wing Democrat? <laughs> exactly believe all the headlines <laughs> yeah um well i want to shift actually if that was a good segue because she's a veteran um i watched dog with my son recently um he is, is in the rotc program jrotc not necessarily like hell bent on the military but he's definitely dipping his toe on the idea um i actually have german shepherds at a line you probably heard one barking when we were talking before um i was blown away by that film and you know obviously the 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 lens of the mental health element of service in our veterans so talk to me about that experience from an actor's point of view it was really cool um i i've uh i i did a tv show a few years ago called chance and uh i got to do a lot of training with veterans because of it as like an ancillary thing because in the show i'm a very capable with um military type tactics and weapons. And so I went and trained with uh, veterans who I'm very friendly with today. And, uh, and so, you know, hearing stories and having conversations with people who had gone through these like truly traumatic events um, and getting to like, have that be more of a conversation, you know, because like the, the, the amount of, um, servicemen and women who kill themselves is like astronomically high, like way higher than, you know, than any of the wars we've had recently um, are people committing suicide. And so like, I don't have, I don't personally have a solution to that, but I do think it, it is a good conversation to have. Well, I think one of the scariest statistics that you don't hear discussed, even, you know, again, you talk about complete lack of leadership. We have an elementary school, you know, absolutely just devastated by that horrendous attack. And the conversation immediately goes to, you know, to pick your side on gun ownership. That aside, we lose more people to suicide from guns than we do homicide. And you never hear that statistic mentioned. Yeah. By, by, by the way, I think it's like two or three times more suicides. You know, like I'm not such a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher. I'm just not. She 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 wasn't she she didn't I, I wasn't into her. 
she did make a really good point about nuclear weapons when Gorbachev and uh, Reagan were kind of going like, how do we get rid of and make nuclear weapons non-existent now? And her point was really, I believe, and this is all paraphrased and I could be bastardizing it to some degree, but she was like, look, guys, the genie's out of the bottle. Like that technology is known. You're not going to erase that technology from all of the minds that understand how it works. So you guys can get rid of all of yours and then some other country is going to develop them. And like we've seen countries who have been trying to develop them um, desperately. And that becomes a big problem, right? Um, it's kind of the same with guns. Like there's no guns. People don't get to own guns in Japan. They just had their, their, one of their ex prime ministers assassinated from a guy who not only did it with a gun that he made himself in his house, but then when they raided his house, they found a bunch more of these things. So from what I understand, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science to it's like a, a, many steps below rocket science to manufacture a gun. And, you know, if we snapped our fingers and all the guns disappeared from America, I just think there would still be an issue of, of guns. And I don't think that that would ever go away. And I don't think it's really possible to snap your fingers and make them go away. So all of these it, it, it again, I go like, are you, is your desired result less gun violence or is your desired result just to have said you made a law that is going to appease people and then let's ignore the gun violence a little bit. Right. And if it's, if it's less gun violence, how much is, is suicide, not violence? If we reduced that, wouldn't that be a, a good net effect of a reduction of gun violence. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I, I, to me, it doesn't seem like anybody's really trying to solve for this end issue. No, I agree completely. And, and I have a unique lens because I came from the UK and I had guns growing up. I lived on a farm, so I had shotguns. Um, and I went, you know, up to Scotland with my, my family and my uncle had rifles up there when they, when they were hunting deer. But it was very strange because when I first came here, I was totally opposed to the idea of owning a weapon. And I've told this story before and I wrote it in my book as well. I was at a code red in my son's school, literally just brought him back for his annual doctor's checkup and the doors closed behind me and they told me you got to get in this you know, supply closet and, and then it unfolded and I saw how vulnerable the children and teachers were, the lack of communication, you know, the zero ability to, you know, to defend yourself. Um, and that was really, even though I'd done Tim Kennedy's sheepdog response prior, that was the first time I actually purchased a weapon and, you know, have it because it's, it's a tool. It's something to use the same way as I've got tourniquets and bandages and other things in my car. But again, the mental health epidemic, when I look at the unique lens I had and, you know, my, my brothers and sisters have as first responders, you get to see the, the hard truths. You get to see that the quote-unquote war on drugs is an epic failure through you know, the homicides and the overdoses and the homelessness and the prostitution. And, and then obviously, if you're working anywhere near the southern border, then you see all the violence around that. And so where is the discussion 
that they are as gun ownership, for example, in Canada and Norway, but they don't have the level of violence that we have on our streets. But the laws that we put in place that came out of racism and job justification in the 30s are now stealing so many people's lives. And the weapon is almost irrelevant. It's the mental health crisis that is created by sending people who are mentally ill, basically have mental health challenges, into the shadows and empowering you know, kids to become members of the underworld. And then you have gang violence and you have overdoses and all these things that we see today. So I believe if you address that element, most weapons would then kind of either whittle down on their own or stay locked in a safe where they belong. Yeah. And, and I, I think that um, one of the issues we face here in America and one of the reasons that I think like fad diet culture is so popular that, you know, there's always a new diet and you do it for 30 days and that'll be the end of you ever having to do a diet again. And then there's a new one a couple months later. I don't know that um, the solutions being presented are the kind of uh, get your hands dirty, do a lot of work kind of solutions. It's quite often like, let's just medicate our way out of mental health issues. And, you know, those statistics don't seem to be improving with the improvement of medicines. And so I, I just go like, I, you know, again, I don't have a solution. I just don't see this problem improving with the solutions that are being presented. And, and for me, like, and this is something I was caught up in for a long time with dieting. It's like, if I just lose weight, I'll be fixed. That was kind of this idea I had in my head. Right. And so if you tell me that removing bread from my diet will make me lose weight, I will be fixed. And so I'll remove bread. And then it, when it doesn't work, I'm stuck going like, well, let me find another one of those. Okay. I remove sugar from my diet and then I will be fixed. And then that doesn't work, you know, and yeah, you can lose a little bit of weight and then you can start, you know, overeating rice or overeating fucking T-bone steaks and, and put the weight back on. And so when it's like, yeah, with all of this stuff, I, I think we're so desperate for get rich quick schemes here in America. You know, if you just buy this cryptocurrency, you're a billionaire for the rest of your life. And so, and, and that's so popular and um, that doesn't solve for everything. You know what I mean? Like if you just take this pill, everything's going to be fine. You know, you, you look at certain cultures that have uh uh, higher recorded happiness and feeling of contentment than we do here. And what I find that they all have in common is the amount of hard work they do, the amount of physical labor that they do. And, you know, I, it, it's terrible to say that because I think in America that that sounds like make people do labor, you know, you know what I mean? Like put them on a chain gang and, and force them into servitude towards the end of happiness. And it's like, no, I don't, I obviously don't think that's the solution, but I do think that where we try so desperately to make everything super easy and comfortable here and I think the result is uh, kind of a discontent with life. You know, I, 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 that's my belief. Um, I, I think there's a, an, epidemic, a, an epidemic of boredom here in America. And that, um, 
you know, we're no longer really surviving as human beings. We're now surviving as identities and surviving as weird ideas that have nothing to do with survival. It's just like, I have this idea. And if you have another idea, that's violence against my idea and you're a bad person. And it's like, what game is this? What happened to like, you know, using your body to go out and produce something and feeling the benefits of that, which tend to be a feeling of contentment and happiness, you know? I had a guy, Michael Easter, on the show who wrote The Comfort Crisis. And the couple of things that really resonated in the conversation, and I read his book, um, you say about, about boredom, I think it's almost actually the opposite where there's a fear of boredom. And we, right. I, I will put my hand up. Like there's times where I realize, okay, I need to freaking cut the chain on my cell phone. And it's not so much I'm scrolling social media feeds. I don't know if you have this. There's For me, it's an unconscious checking of, well, how many downloads have there been? Has there been engagement? And there is a value to knowing if people are hitting play on a podcast like this where they'll learn from the guests. But again, it's like, why can I not just be still? Why do I have to pull out my phone while I'm in the checkout line or waiting in the doctor's office why can i not just sit there and be content and then the other thing that i thought was really powerful and very pertinent to to this conversation is you we think about you know the the deviation from suffering that's created so much you know ill health in this country but one of the things he touched on was when he was um hunting in alaska the suffering that is hunger Right, And I was like, I never really thought of that specific thing, that people are afraid to be hungry even. Oh, yeah. I've got to go pull through this drive through Like, you know, you're driving four hours and the, you know, the turnpike here has the worst fucking food you can possibly get. It's all they have to offer. And rather than just go without and wait till you get home to eat something healthier, you'll pull over and buy the shit because the moment your, your body says, I'm hungry, you just, you just cave and go, okay, let's go get some food. And you know, if you look evolutionary, you know, through an evolutionary lens, we would have had, you know, feast and famine. And it's good to be hungry sometimes. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and I, I'm a fan of his work. And I want to just say, I think um, how I imagine boredom is very similar to uh, what he's describing as comfort. It, you know, scrolling on social media checking doing stuff that doesn't really need to be done in my opinion is boredom and it could be considered comfort but you're getting these yes you're getting these small dings of dopamine because a number changed or uh you know somebody posted something fascinating on social media that's not quite the same as arriving at some barren land and needing to erect a tent to cover you that night, that kind of work, or going to a job with a list of tasks that you intend on doing is a different type of um, work, I think, than stimulating yourself with social media and clicks and all of that, which that for me falls into the category of boredom. And, and, and it's a, um, a very dangerous place for me. Um, but yeah, I think all of that is a net negative for us, you know, and, but again, that's my value system. I, you know, I think it's probably a better idea to be not obese, but if somebody wants to be obese, I, I'm not sh in interested at all in shaming them or, you know, making fun of them or anything like that. I lived like that for a very, very long time. Well, speaking of, I guess being present and doing things that offer true value. One thing 
and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seemed to have noticed through the kind of genesis of, of your social media side is leaning a lot into cooking. And I think that's a that's a skill and art that's lost in itself. I mean, our younger generation, and you, you spoke earlier about making um, packed lunch for your kids. I did the same thing from kindergarten onwards. He's never bought from the school. Um, and uh, But teaching them about food, teaching them about, you know, what it looks like, how to prepare it, and not just our children, but, you know, as we progress through adulthood as well. So what's been that evolution for you as far as kind of finding yourself in the kitchen more? Yeah, you know, it was really funny and 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 again when i started to diet i didn't i didn't apply really the same principles that i thought about addiction towards like if i when i start when i got sober i would have never gone and become a bartender i would have never gone and you know become a drug dealer or been involved in drugs and alcohol in a secondary way and i caved to that urge when I started dieting, um, where I became fascinated and I found that I could get some sense of like sublimation by, okay, if I can't eat this thing, I can cook it. I can watch somebody cooking it on TV and that will satisfy something in me. Um, I don't think that's the healthiest thing to do, but I did become kind of obsessed with food. And this was long before I, I really... I kept having failures too, because it's like, now I know how to make a really good cassoulet. So as soon as I'm going to cheat on my diet, I'm going to make myself a really good cassoulet and eat the shit out of it with crusty bread. And, and so that was kind of problematic, but I, I got fairly good at cooking and I would cook dinner parties for my wife and all her friends would come over and ooh and awe over this food I made, which I then couldn't eat because I was on a diet. And then when I would go off my diet, I'd be like, I have a list of things I've been making handmade pasta, you know, and chicken salt and boca and like all this stuff. And I'm going to cook that and I'm going to eat it all. What happened when I really started to confront my behaviors was I started looking at like what the different foods type, different food types actually were. Like if it's all energy, is it all equal energy? And what do, what, what, what role does protein play in my body and what role does carbohydrates play in my body? And so when I really started to get my shit together, it became this thing of like, oh, now I have to cook because I can control what's in it. You go to a restaurant, you tell them you want a steamed fish. Okay, maybe you got a steamed fish and maybe you're eating that steamed fish and you're going, this is the greatest steamed fish I've ever had in my life. And it's because before they steamed it, they threw some oil and some sugar on it, right? And so suddenly, like, it's not just a piece of steamed fish. And I'm not saying you can never go out to restaurants because I do occasionally, but I, I like knowing what I'm putting in my body. I like knowing that this amount of protein is necessary and therefore I'm getting it. And this amount of carbohydrates is necessary and therefore I'm getting it. And I'm not going to exceed fats mindlessly because that's a real easy thing to do, especially for me, you know, um, tablespoon of olive oil has 130 calories. I never was measuring that before. I was just a loose pour. And my wife would go like, you got to have a quarter cup of olive oil on there. And I'd go, no way. It's a tablespoon. And then when you measure out a tablespoon, it's like really not that much, you know? Um, and so, you know, taking the extra time for me and preparing food for even a couple of days in advance has made a huge difference in how I live my life. 
Did you get to a moment where you noticed a shift towards you being able to cook, at least in, in a way that you preferred, you could call it better, than a lot of the lower-level restaurants? Because I had that. I mean, if you get a good quality steak, for example, and you just season it lightly and you grill it the way you want, I'm like, God, I used to pay $20 for this steak, and it wasn't as good. And like you said, it was covered in oil and seasoned. So have you, had you noticed that the more you cooked, the less you lent into eating out? Yeah, you, you know... You, it's got to be a really special restaurant to get me excited about what they're going to make for, for uh, the, the kind of the easiest one, but it's still got to be pretty good as sushi. Like that's not always the easiest thing to make. Sushi rice is really involved. So making the right sushi rice, getting the right grade fish that you can serve raw, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of effort in that. So I find quite often I can be excited about going to eat sushi but you want to just have a bowl of pasta or a steak to your point. Like it's gotta be really high end to get me thinking like, I'm going to go off my diet for this. You know what I mean? Otherwise it's just fuel. If you're not really doing something incredible with it, you know, that's the, the other thing is like eating fast food. It, it was not about, fueling my body at all. It was just this habit that I had of uh, a burst of fat and sugar and uh, a sense of being overly full that I got used to. Right. And however that magical equation went down at different fast food places, it equaled this sense of satisfaction. And so I had to work really hard to get away from that satisfaction because in the long run, that satisfaction was killing me. And so now with an interest in food, it's like, it's not really hard to pump something full of fat and add some sugar and add some butter. You know what I mean? Like, this is not difficult at all. How do you make something taste really good using spice, which is a zero energy um, increase? You know what I mean? Like, and it's possible to do that, you know, mess with your vegetables, cook a vegetable in a way you never would have thought of cooking it. And and then you have this new experience and maybe you don't like it, but you've at least tried, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. There's um, a Brussels sprouts recipe. I think one of my fire lieutenants made years ago, but it was, you know, again, we're not talking like uber low calorie, but it was balsamic vinegar and some chopped up bacon and a little bit of honey. And it's incredible. Yeah, you take a kid a that hates dish. Brussels sprouts, they're going to eat the shit out of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. Like I have a buddy who's like, I will never eat beets. And so then it becomes my mission. I'm like, okay, I got about 20 ways I can prepare beets. Let's give them a try. And you find one and he's like, well, this is delicious. And I've done that with the same guy with ginger, you know, making him different curries and going like, this has, you know, five ounces of fresh ginger. You can't put more ginger in it. And he's like, that's wild. I, I actually like this, you know, um, and so, you know, maybe something your mother served you um, as a kid could become something completely different today. And you're kind of turned off to it because it was done in whatever fashion for at whatever period. Um, but, yeah, I, I think a little bit of experimentation with food, especially to the end of health, is is always fun. I think beets are the best ones because you can convince your friend that they're peeing blood as well. So it's an added yeah. sign bonus. <laughs> yeah. Beets are awesome. So 
one more thing I want to touch on before there's another kind of separate area I want to go. Um, you mentioned the 500 pound person if they don't have a desire to lose weight. My not not counter argument at all, but my my lens is very much when you look at some of the incredible people you had on your show, for example, some of these high achievers, and you see what the human body is capable of. I almost mourn for the journey that that individual was taken to to get to 500 pounds and, and be okay with it because you know yeah. the potential of what they could have been able to do. With you know the incredible shape that you're in now, when you look back, what are the, some of the things? Because I don't think that weight loss in itself is a motivator. And when I, when I coach in CrossFit, you know, to me, it's when someone climbs a rope for the first time or is able to do a handstand. Those are the tangible a muscle things. muscle up, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So were there any kind of movements or, or things that you did with your kids or anything that, that really struck you like, wow, I, this was purely, you know, um, possible because of this journey I've put through myself through? Yeah, man. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, the first time I spent a day at Disneyland with my kids and and wasn't like starting to think, when are we going home? Because my feet hurt after an hour or two. That was like a huge, huge thing for me. Um, uh, you know, Getting on a, an airplane and not having to order an, a, a seatbelt extender was a massive deal for me. Um, and then, it, you know, there was a period where I was uh, like trying this this thing on where I'd like drive around and and things that I would have had thoughts about for my whole life. Like, I wonder what it's like at the top of that mountain. Well, I'll never know. I would make myself pull over and go walk up to the top of that mountain. And that was just something it was like, what is, what, what are the things that I literally could not do? I want to do those things. Now I went, I've gone horseback riding. That was, that's not happening at 500 pounds. Um, and, uh, you know, and then just personally, the first time I did a pull-up, I almost cried. Like I couldn't believe I did a pull-up. I had done a number of them with bands, with a trainer at one point. And even those seemed so far away from being a reality. And then one day I, I w w saw a guy doing pull-ups and I was like, that's so cool that you can do that. And he was like, what do you mean? You could do a pull-up. And I was like, no, dude, you don't know. I'm pretty heavy. And he was like, you can do a pull-up, just try. And I did. And it was like, not even that hard. And I banged out five of them and I could not believe I was doing a pull-up. And then he was like, now, if you turn your hands around, it's really, it's much harder, but I bet you could do that too. And I could, and like, it was just this wild experience. So, you know, like weight as some arbitrary number, you know, the other thing is, I think to your point, um, there's a perspective, the, the perspective that I had for so long was that um, continuing to do what I was doing was 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 a no effort thing. When I think about the amount of effort it took me just to get out of bed, the amount of effort it took me to get dressed, the amount of effort it took me to go out in public, the amount of effort it took me to procure and consume the amount of food I needed to procure and consume in order to have my weight continue to go up. The effort was staggering. The effort I put into life now is so much less 
So for that, it's just a perspective shift on like, where am I actually, you know, I, I, as a very fat person, I got so good at, um, calculating efforts. Like I'm sitting in a place and I'm pouring sweat and I have a jacket on and it's kind of hot. And what is the trade-off here? If I, I have to stand up to take my jacket off, how much energy am I going to use standing up to take my jacket off versus just sitting here? Okay. I don't feel like spending that. It, it, like I would get good at that kind of thing, you know, looking uh, around at like a path through a public place and calculating, are there any steps that I'm going to like, you know, steps in elevation, or if I go this way, it's a little bit longer, but I don't have to go up. And so I'm going to choose that route because it's less effort, right? I would do that with everything. And, and I never realized, and I never thought about how much effort it just took to live versus a little bit of effort. You know, I think about it sometimes as far as like um, steering a ship. I don't know if you've ever captained a, a sailboat or, or, or st- steered a ship before. You make a massive turn and you're going to go like in a crazy direction or spin around in circles. You make a little, little, little adjustment to the wheel and you are going to go in a vastly different, you're going to end up at a vastly different place. And so when I think about the small, small shifts I've made to my life, the amount of overall energy and effort I have now put into life is so much less. Going to the gym every day and getting cardio every day and working out my food every day is still less effort than an average day at 500 pounds carrying around that weight. Just going to the bathroom was probably as much effort, you know, doing that squat with all that weight on me was so much effort. Um, so I think that perspective change was like a revelation where I went like any change is too hard and it's going to require too much effort. And when I come to it today, I'm like, everything's so much easier. There, there's no comparison to how much effort I had to put into life before just to maintain that weight versus now it's like, it's like night and day. Like if I'm going to do that calculation, I come out on this side of it every single time. I'm almost certain it was our conversation two years ago where you framed it that way. And I've quoted that ever since where, you know, basically being obese is hard. Working out is hard. So choose your heart. And and I, this was really. And, and I will tell you, working out is so much less hard than being obese in every way, mentally, physically. It's just less hard. Well, I had a kind of eye-opening you know, experience just a few months ago. It was Murph, you know, the the mile run with the, the plate carrier twice and, you know, the push-ups, pull-ups and um, squats. And it, it literally hit me in the middle of this workout in the blistering sun in Florida. I'm like, fuck, man, this is 20 pounds. Just 20 pounds, and the exertion is double. Imagine if this was 200 pounds, you know, and I don't have to ask you, but I mean, for people that haven't ever put on that kind of weight, but to frame it that way, when you actually think about, you know, how much, as you said, you are carrying around, that you had an entire human strapped to your back 24-7, then yeah, and I think that's the thing is whatever frame it is. I had John Gord on the show. I know he was on yours as well. I mean, there's all these amazing people that – 
have found whatever works for them, whether it was, you know, riding a bike like, like you did, or, you know, I, I forget John's, you know, backstory now, but those small changes, I think the problem is people drink from a fire hose with, with life hacks and, and, you know, nutritional changes and, and, uh, workout changes rather than just owning one little piece, start in there. And then when that becomes, you know, ingrained, then you start clicking one at a time. And then before yeah. you know it, you have this power, excuse me, you have this paradigm shift. And as you are now, you're looking back and going, well, shit, you know, and it's, that's what was crazy. And I want to kind of explore this in a second. When I Googled you to kind of just make sure I can add some more current things to discuss, what was incredible is Ethan Supley today were the images that filled the screen. Yeah. You know, so even like, you know, in the consciousness, in the world, you know, that that previous one, is, that skin has been shed now, and this is your reality today. Yeah, it, it, you know, I I do I you know I I always think of these like kind of hippy dippy like mindfulness it irritates me it's like cringy but then when you go like oh what I'm doing right now is mindfulness you go like okay I now get it but I was resistant to it I was resistant to you know there's been no like it's I've heard lifestyle change my whole life and I just never got it right I I think I wanted to quit eating bread and that's it. I wanted it to be very easy. And even if, um, even if I'm going to do like, uh, uh, five or 600 calorie a day, which is nothing uh, or very, very close to nothing, uh, a day diet for two months, that's those two months are going to suck, but then I don't have to think about it anymore. Right. And so there's no, there was never really, um, an urge to make real but small adjustments to my whole life and and actually go like oh it's a total change it's a total makeover like nothing about my life today resembles anything about my life 20 years ago it it really is completely different and and there are some like non-negotiable things that i can never mess with like i can never sneak food ever under any circumstances. This is non-negotiable. It would be the same for me as drinking alcohol or sniffing cocaine or something like this. That is just something I'm working every day going like, that's a line I cannot cross. Right. And um, I know where that path leads. And so I just don't cross it. But trying to pick one type of food and then go like, my whole life is going to all the change that I need to do in my life is in this one type of food. I wanted that to be true. It just wasn't true. Um, it just required more. It required, you know, I, I don't get to eat right before I go to bed, a giant meal, right? I, I, I have some protein powder and water before I go to bed because my body will use that in a certain way, but it's not going to use a bunch of fat and sugar in the same way when I just then lay down for eight hours. Um, so yeah, it, it, it has been a kind of a, a, a radical change, but like, really they are small changes. It is stuff like, it isn't stuff like, um, no, like bread is off limits. It's more like, you know, I don't want to be sneaking food like, or I don't want to be watching TV and eating food. And I, you know, I don't want to get overly hungry. Like this is one of my things where it's like, 
if I'm supposed to eat in a day and I miss a meal, I'll more likely make a bad decision at my next meal. So that's what I'm careful of. But I agree with you about, I do think we're vastly overfed and I don't think there's anything wrong with a little bit of hunger. But when we're solving that with, um, you know, when there's a plethora of cheap calories at the gas station or at the office depot, you know, every store I walk out of at the cash register, there's a plethora of cheap calories. There's soda and sugar and everything else. And now there's a bunch of keto stuff. Like you can buy a stick of salami there too now, you know? So it's like all this, uh, that stuff's off limits to me. Um, anyway. Yeah. Well, even one thing that irritates me, I think this is partly probably from (laughs) being in a high stress job for a long time. Um, you can't sit at a restaurant these days without being televisions everywhere too. Right. And I, I don't understand that. Like, do you, is your goal when you go to you know to a restaurant with your family to make sure that you can watch the news because it's hardly ever even anything entertaining so i don't, i mean whether it's the the consumerism of our attention with our calories or even just our attention period it's so hard to find a social meeting place where you can be present and maybe share a coffee or something that's not you know too demeaning to your health without having your attention just pulled because that kind of reflex that we have as mammals as far as you know survival instinct for the fucking tv your eyes are darting up and down and it just destroys that ability to be present yeah it's it's so awful um and yeah you you I, we do work towards but uh, towards getting away from that but you'll find it even in nice restaurants you know where those flashing pictures are distractions and then it's like we could have stayed home and done this you know what i mean the food's not even typically that great um yeah that's just a, another aspect of our very destroyed attention spans i think well, I want to just hit one more area and then just just pull some some takeaways from your guests that you've had. But before I do, I had a guy Brian McKenzie on the show who's uh, kind of one of the, the the breathing gurus in the the movement space, and he was uh, an alcoholic and and used the twelve steps for a long time. But he reported saying one day he stopped going to meetings because for his particular journey, it was almost a reminder of the alcoholic he used to be. And he felt like he had you know, a metamorphosis. He felt like a completely different person. And so it was healing for him to finally be able to stop the meetings at work for his particular choice. When you used to Google, you know, and when you do now, obviously there's a side-by-side you today versus you, you know, in American History X. What is, as far as your identity piece, how have you been able to kind of, not, not detach so much, but to, to start reframing the way that you saw yourself in the mirror for so long to who you actually are today. Yeah, that's still a bit of um, effort. I still have to put some effort into that because, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm not always totally sure of what the root cause of any of this is, but I'll wake up and just feel down on myself and then I look in the mirror and then I think I feel fat and then, you know, I get on the scale and maybe it's not down and anything, anytime I get on the scale and it's not down, that's upsetting to me. Um, even if I'm not trying to make it go down, you know what I mean? Like as I'm maintaining my weight, if I get on the scale and it's the same number, I'm disappointed somehow. This is all just, you know, 
contradictory uh, emotional garbage. Um, but I will go out of my way to kind of like um, find something about myself that I can admire and then just build on that. You know what I mean? And I've had to do it to the point where I go like, I'm not good at anything. I don't know how to do anything. And then I go like, that's not true. I know how to tie my shoes. You know what I mean? Like I'm talking myself out of feeling super down on myself. Um, and, and I do that with my physicality. It's often my traps, like this area in between my clavicle. As long as that stays visible, I can see my trap, you know, and there's a dent there. And I go like, oh, look at that muscle separation. That's cool. That really does look cool, I think. And so I'm not a total piece of crap. Um, but there was no real escape from that when I was 500 pounds and doing drugs. That was that was just, you know, it was a kind of almost constant feeling of um shame and disappointment and and it was easy to uh numb that with food and drugs um but then it was very difficult when i stopped doing drugs to escape that and so life was pretty tough then um but working towards any of these goals uh i felt better and so i continued to do that so many people that come on the show of all you know walks of life i was just absolutely blown away by how many had an element of childhood trauma now i know when we spoke a couple of years ago there wasn't anything if i'm if my memory serves me right that you really kind of identified has there been any unpacking this last couple of years that maybe have opened your your mind a little bit more to the possibility of a, a quote-unquote void that you were filling with food and, and drugs at one point no, you know, it really, when I think about how I wound up the way I did, you know, I, I think I just have a, 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 a bent towards excess. And so I was already probably eating more than was necessary at five years old. And then I was put on a diet and I really fought against that. Um, but in secret. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I just think, um, I'm a very excessive dude. And so when, when I go into something, I go hard. And that seems to be a kind of resounding theme for some people too. I mean, just that the addiction gene, as they call it. Um, yeah. all right. Well, I just want to go to one more area before we go to some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. But with so many episodes now, I mean, you've had Eric Goodman on, uh, Michael Pena and I just had Will Jimeno on the show who Michael portrayed in the World Trade Center movie. He was one of the Port Authority guys that survived. Um, oh, wow. And I think Michael was incredible in Crash too. That's so amazing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you've had some some great minds from obviously your your vocation, but also the wellness space. In these last few years of doing the podcast, um, were there any guests that really were kind of aha moments for you as far as their work and its impact on your life specifically? As far as their work and like um, in the area of health and nutrition, you know, like I think about um, Tom Kyer, who is a, a, a tactical weapons specialist and trains military dudes and, and just taking some of his um, his teachings and applying them to different, you know, because like 
the majority of my life is not or very little. If, in fact, you know, next to none of my life is about combatives. Um, but the way he teaches that and his, his kind of, he calls it LOT logical order of thought, the way he kind of navigates the world, I find to be really useful. Um, so I'm always thinking about stuff that he said to me and, uh, and then like getting to have a guy like Will Sasso on my show, who I had known very, not really well, but very peripherally in the acting world and, and finding that we had, um, you know, very similar stories and very similar experiences that always makes me feel like, Oh, I'm not so alone. You know what I mean? Somebody else is going through what I'm going through. And I find that to be kind of helpful. I think there's always, um, a bit of, a. I I've always had this feeling that like, I am out here experiencing everything I'm experiencing, uh, you know, on an island and nobody can relate. And then when you find out somebody utterly relates, it's, it's nice. Um, so, so he was great too. I don't think men realize how many other men share their body dysmorphia. We look at women. Um, and I think it's more evident now than ever when you look at social media and you look at the narcissism. And I don't mean that in a, in a condescending judgmental way, but in an empathetic way. I think that now it's re made people realize this is how many men need validation for the way they look. And I'm a very, very lean, you know, I'm six foot 170, so tall, skinny dude. And I'll have days like, oh man, you can't see your abs today. You must be getting fat, you know? And it's, it's good to have a barometer. I'd rather catch it, you know, five pounds in than 50 pounds. But I think those voices exist in all of us, you know? And, and as you said, it's really about that foundation that you've built, whether it's, you know, you're very fortunate, had a great journey up to adulthood or whether you've navigated some pitfalls like you have. But I don't think anyone, you know, really survives that because we're surrounded by so many, quote unquote, beautiful people, these photoshopped, you know, models or these, these uh, you know, bodybuilders that for one day a year actually look good, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and it's it's such a, a facade. But I, I yeah, but it, Conversely, I think, like you said, you hit the nail on the head, and I think that's the fundamental problem with mental health, is that we all think that we're the one that's being weak and that everyone else is fine. And that facade of being fine, the world is very good at acting. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I my kid snapped a picture of me not long ago at, you know, in fact, it was like a week ago at a beach, and I had, you know, just gotten out of the water and I had a towel around my waist. And she was like, dad, this is such a cool picture of you. And I looked at it and I was like, you can't see my abs. And she was like, who cares? And I was like, well, that means I look fat. And she was like, you don't look fat though. And I, and I was like, okay. And I like went home, went into the, you know, of course we have the best lighting in our bathroom. And so I went into the bathroom and the best place for lighting is in the shower. And I took my shirt off and I took a picture and I was like, see that? I can do these back to back and say they're the same day. And my kid was just so like perplexed going like, what are you doing? The picture is fine. And, and, you know, like I even go like, who the fuck cares? I wanted to see my abs. I'd never seen them, but if my abs disappear, that doesn't mean I'm obese. You know what I mean? It's actually a pretty hard fucking thing to maintain visible abs. That's not easy. And so, 
I don't even necessarily know if I want to sell people this idea that like you always have to have abs. I don't know that that's even healthy. And so like at the end of it, my kid snapped me out of it. She was like, dad, what are you like? This is crazy. You're acting crazy. And I was like, you're right. I'm not posting any of this. I don't want to. It's like, who, who gives a shit? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a hard it's a hard thing to, to shake, you know? Um, and, and, and it's, thank God you feel it too, you know, because I go like, nobody can understand this. I was 500 pounds and it's like, no, a dude who's six foot 170 totally understands it and goes through basically the same thing. Absolutely. I just went through, I don't know what the hell happened, but it was either chronic gas and or fluid retention, but I had, uh, I think they, they call it Koshikor, I think. Basically, it looked like the pot, pot belly that the poor, you know, starving children get in some of the African nations when they're going through droughts. I had that, and it wasn't through lack of nutrition. It was some, my guts were fucked up, who knows. But I had this little pot belly. I was, firstly, it was so uncomfortable to work out with because it was bouncing up and down. But secondly, I was so self-conscious about it. And if I'm completely honest, like, I normally wear just shorts when I work out. I'm barefoot, I don't have a shirt, just because... It's the opposite. It's not like I want people to look at me. I don't. My my lack of fucks given, you know, is is the driving force to me not wanting to you know, soak my t shirt that I got to then you know drive home and in my car. So I'm like, well, I'll take it off before I sweat, sweat all over the gym, and then put my dry shirt back on and drive home. Yeah. But I notice myself wearing my t shirt more, you know. And again, if you put side by side, could you could you know, especially with the lighting? I mean, I know from a skinny guy that's lean. If I put the light above me. It accentuates my abs, but also the wrinkles on my face. So it's like a <laughs> cost right. versus gain. But if you glare it straight at me, I'm just a white blank thing with nipples. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, all of that. But it's, 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 it's all of us. It is literally all. I mean, if you ask someone, I'm sure, who's, you know, in Kenya or, you know, some Inuit or something, they probably don't give a shit. But everyone in the Western world, we all suffer from that. And I think especially the male side of it, we don't allow that conversation but we are just as vain as our female counterparts we may not wear fancy clothes and put makeup on but our you know our the fact that it worries us when we look in the mirror and we don't look our best affects us equally male and female yeah yeah it does and it's not it's not a huge part of the conversation um i i i you know if somebody's struggling with weight and and that's their that's the the goal that is most uh tangible to them i'm fine with it like have that be your goal you want abs great but i think these 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 superficial goals for me have been the most meaningless not you know having to turn sideways to go through narrow doorways that's meaningful to me and and not in a uh you know a lightly crowded place brushing into people with parts of my body because my parts parts of my body are so big that i can't help but brush into them that's meaningful to me walking with my kids and not calculating when i'm next going to be able to sit down that's meaningful like those things are far for me have been more meaningful than being able to see my abs. Well, I know we're roughly the same age. I think you're a couple of years younger than me. One thing that I've seen also threaten 
a journey is injury. And obviously, the older you get, the more chance. What about that element? I mean, you, you had such an incredible genesis. Were there any injuries that, that, you know, kind of threw a spanner in the works for a while along the way? Oh, yeah. I've had I've had plenty of injuries. Um, and that's kind of why I work out the way I do now, where it, like, you know, I'm not I'm not hyper focused on strength, so I'm not doing, uh, you know, really, really heavy stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm not also I'm, I'm more interested in slow and steady fat burning. So I'm not doing anything really super explosive. Excuse me. Um, uh, but I've torn my bicep. I have a little bit of uh, tendonitis in my in my upper bicep where my shoulder attaches. I've had meniscus removed. I've had terrible bike crashes. And and um, the real problem for me with any of that is like a real injury sets you back a lot. And so the idea for me is like, I want to find stuff that I could feasibly be doing forever, you know, um, light cardio in the gym for a half an hour and then 45 minutes to an hour of weights if done correctly, can be done forever. Uh, and, uh, I do have to stay away from, you know, I, um, I've had my kid, one of my kids got into, uh, weightlifting and she was like doing squats and stuff. And she was like, what's your one rep max? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. And she was like, no, no, you have to, I know, you know, you have to tell me. And I was like, no, no, really. I haven't done a one rep max since before you were born. And I like, I will not do a one rep max. I have no interest in that. It doesn't mean anything. That number me is utterly meaningless for me. The what's meaningful is that I can increase the volume of what I'm doing right now over the next month, then take kind of a break, then do it all again. That's all I care about. Well, it's crazy as well. If you think about your one rep max used to be 300 pounds, just getting off the toilet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I had to, and by the way, I had to use perfect form every time because I could have hurt myself and I did. Yeah. Well, I think the injury thing is an important part of the conversation too, because it's definitely sometimes two steps forward, one and three quarter steps back. I mean, I've had a back injury that I heal with just purely with movement. Eric Goodman's foundation training absolutely saved my career. 100% amazing. Yeah. And then uh, meniscus tears on both knees as well. So that's all within about five years whilst being a fireman. So, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's humbling the mental health impact of an injury. I don't think people understand that that's far worse than the physical pain. You know, the tendency to, to be served up opiates, a cocktail of opiates for said injury. Um, but just having the, the the humility to say, all right, well, fuck it, I'm going to go back to a PVC pipe and we'll start working our way back up again. But it's the potential to derail a, a wellness injury, excuse me, a wellness journey from an injury is is huge. Yeah, I mean, that that is, and and it was often my, um, my inclination to do, to, you know, there was a lot of time, man, when I, would you know wake up one day go my life is unmanageable or i've now gained more than i had lost previously what the hell am i doing i got to do something radical and then it would be like a punishment and th there was this idea of like i can punish myself to wellness bullshit 
not the case. I need to take care of my body. I need to figure out stuff that is going to be a net benefit in the long term. Not it's not it's got nothing to do. You know, there will be some days where I do 30 minutes of cardio and an hour of weights and there's no sweat through my shirt and I have to struggle with did I really work out? You know what I mean? And I have to really sit there and go do I need to go bang out a bunch of kettlebell swings right now just to work up a sweat? And, and most of the time I escape that and go, no, I had a programmed workout. I did my programmed workout. I got every rep and every set done. I'm done. I have to leave now. Um, because the, the propensity for me to injure myself is too great. And the, the, the real cost mentally and physically, but mostly mentally, but, but, perceived physically is way too scary now just quickly what about the rest and recovery side because in you know a lot of people are listening to this are shift workers and and it's so hard when you are a professional who takes their job seriously who understands that lives truly depend on our ability to perform they get fire service for example get zero sleep every third day of their career the rest and recovery element is so important. What about your weight loss journey? There has to be a tendency to have that bigger, biggest loser mentality and just be working out 24-7. How are you able to rein it in and, and, and be as diligent with your rest and recovery as you are with your exercise itself? It's, uh, if, in my opinion, it's as important as the, the actual uh, productive work. It is productive work. Rest and recovery is productive work. So this is a perspective shift too. I did there 2010 and 11. I, my, um, my weight loss, uh, scheme was riding a bicycle. And so I rode a bicycle eight hours a day, six days a week and four hours on Sunday for two years. I went over and did rode every stage of the tour de France a couple of times like that. And I lost a ton of weight and I was really skinny. And then I had a bicycle accident and gained a bunch of weight. Um, and, and, you know, I had kind of worn my body down so much doing that much exercise, never really taking a break that after the bike accident, it just didn't heal right. And it took a long time to heal. Um, so I, part of my, um, calculation in dieting, but also in uh, exercise is allowing the body to kind of get over the stress you've put it under. So dieting and reducing calories is stressful to the body. So I always build in a maintenance period and I always will take a, a long time at uh, basically no no gain or loss stage. And it's really hard and it's gotten I, you know, if you had told me to do this when I was 400 pounds, I don't know that I would have been capable of doing. I really started to do this at 370. Um, that was when I was like, oh, uh, I've fatigued my body's nervous system, my endocrinology, and just its ability to um, utilize fat stores by dieting for a while. Now I need to take a break from dieting. That 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 always sounded to me like a diet break means you're gaining weight and eating whatever you want. It's just as much a strict diet as eating under in a caloric deficit for me. And so in the same regards with exercise, 
I work out for basically six week blocks and week one is pretty damn easy. Week two is a little bit harder. By the time I get to week six, I'm nearing failure at some of the movements I'm doing, but failure for me is just, you know, my arms are shaking a little bit. I'm never going to wind up with the barbell across my chest. Like that is absolute failure. Failure for me is one imperfect rep, one rep that um, doesn't look beautiful. You know what I mean? Um, And so I'm winding up like that in week six. And then I'm taking a week of really, really, really low activity recovery. So walks and, you know, like if I'm going to do any weights, it's going to be 50% of what I was doing in week one. That is so important so that the body can recover and the muscles and the nervous system and everything can recover so that when I go back into it. So all of that is as important to me as the part where I'm seeing real gains, you know, like they say with weightlifting, you, your, your actual gains happen when you're resting. You're not, you're damaging the muscles when you're lifting a weight. The, the, I would hope for most people, their perspective is they want to um, have the muscles be better off. That doesn't happen when you're lifting the weight that happens when you're resting because you lifted the weight. So for me, rest and recovery is, absolutely as important as the actual work. And if time is a factor and you're not predisposed to weight gain, fat gain, I would um, certainly for myself, I would err on the side of more rest than more work. If you're, if you're coming off something where you haven't slept in a couple of days, you're, you're going to get more benefit out of sleeping than you are of going to the gym, in my opinion. Yeah, well, your opinion lines up with so many other great minds I've had on the show, and I think that's a you know a misnomer that a lot of us bought into, which is you know no pain, no gain, and actually right. the you know the converse is is true. Well, I want to just throw a few closing questions at you if you have time before I let you go. Sure. Um, yeah. The first one I'd love to ask, and I guess all these are kind of for the last two years. Um, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Ah, you know, I think, uh, I really love Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Um, I love Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Uh, I love, um, there's a book, uh, about, um, kind of the history of firearms in America called unintended consequences. That is really good. Um, um, Jonathan Heights, The Righteous Mind, and um, Burnham's The Machiavellians is a great book. There's a ton of great books out there. None of those have anything to do with health and fitness. Yeah, no, that's, that's the whole point, though. I mean, we've been all over the place in this conversation, too. So what about a movie and or documentary? Um, a documentary. Let's see. Um a movie you know fucking top gun was awesome i thought it really was um yeah i really liked top gun and i felt like we hadn't i i hadn't had like outside of like marvel or dc or something like that like a movie where a movie star is just doing cool movie star shit in a couple of years it felt like and so it was like a nice way to go like 
yeah, we're, we're, we're doing good. Top Gun is out and it's badass. And it's maybe even better than the first one, which I hate to say, cause I love Tony Scott so much. Um, but that, I thought that that movie was awesome. And then I liked the, um, uh, the, the Kanye West documentary, um, on Netflix, you know, seeing him with his mom made me tear up. It was like, like, I just, I just saw how much his mother loved him and how like special she was as a person. And she reminded me of my mom and, uh, and I envied, I, 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 not envied, envy isn't the right word. I just thought like, we need more moms like that. Like what a special lady she was. It reminded me of, um, was it Tyrone Woodley? I think it was his mother. I believe one of the UFC fighters anyway, her, her son had been beaten by another fighter and she saw him backstage and she ended up hugging him because I guess he was, you know, he was then upset because, you know, these most of these people like each other. There's not actually a real hate. But that moment yeah. of compassion between these two fighters and this mother was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I saw the video of that. I can't remember who the fighters were either. But yes, it was a beautiful moment. And I, I you know, I wonder if if in, you know, my my wife gets very angry at Disney movies because it's always the mom who gets killed right off the bat. And, and I don't know if moms get enough credit. Like moms are super important. You know, we hear a lot of talk about dads and I have a great dad and I love my dad very much, but I also think um, the moms deserve a lot of recognition. Absolutely. hundred percent. I think that goes back to the beginning of this conversation, mothers and fathers. I mean, some of us are blessed that the, the initial marriage works and they stay together and some sadly are, are separated, but we still have a duty to be kind and compassionate ourselves and raise, raise kind, compassionate, yet strong children. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, uh, hopefully our children are capable you know, I don't know, dude, I'm, I worry, I worry what, uh, what the, uh, you know, the, the, the next, the world's going to look like for the next generation. Yeah. Well, I think it's up to, to us. And I really do believe this, your podcast, my podcast, all the other great, you know, podcasts and documentaries and, you know, conversations that are happening as toxic as this communication that we have in 2022 can be, as we have seen, there's also the power for unity. And, you know, I think, for example, the political discussion, I've been very vocal about this for years. There's no better glaring example of how broken our system is to choose leadership than the last two people that have sat in that that seat. And, you know, I, I use this expression all the time, but you can't expect cupcakes in a turret factory. You know, we have to change <laughs> the way that we vote people. So these people that are being held up on a pedestal as quote unquote leaders and inspiration to our children we have to start there and then the polar opposite of the scale, we have to look in the mirror ourselves. And if we can get those two journeys to meet and use this level of communication that we found through, you know, the internet, we can absolutely affect change, but we have to not allow these minority um, divisive voices to be at the forefront, but the, the, the middle, as I said, 80%, we have to rise up and, and kind of walk the walk when it comes to compassion and kindness and, you know, improving the country's physical and mental wellness and, and, and having that discussion where 
doesn't matter what party you hail from, that middle 80%, most of us agree with each other on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do, I do, I do, I do believe that, um, you know, the really hot button topics that seem to be dividing us so much, I suspect most people are, are kind of a bit closer to um agreement on the way they should be enacted you know what i mean i i do think that the media tends to find buttons and press down on them hard just to get these reactions and uh you know um gavin newsom who california shrank for the first time ever in its entire history and he did a he did a, a, a campaign video in Florida telling people to move to California for more freedom. And like, I just think it's all become so like, you know, it's like Gotham and comic book and, and like bizarre. And I, I, I don't recognize any of this. And I think, you know, there was a day and age where there were fist fights in Congress going back a couple hundred years, you know. Um, so maybe it's not all that insane, you know, there, there, there was, I don't think it happened during my lifetime, but there was also a bombing, like people set off bombs in Congress and, and we're not having that, you know, um, we're having other stuff that all seems like a caricature of that almost. I don't know. It's a very, very bizarre time. Idiocracy, I think was a premonition more than a comedy movie. <laughs> yeah. Truly, yeah. We're going to drink our Gatorade and slowly drift off. <laughs> All right. Well, one of, the, one of the last questions I have for you. Is there a person who you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Tom Kyer. Beautiful. Have you had him? Not yet. You no, so I will. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. Tom Kyer and uh, Bill Rapier is another guy. And Kyle DeFore is another guy. There's there's some really wonderful guys. And there's actually a guy um, named uh, Carnivore Mike Fox Foxtrot. I believe that's his handle. Um, and he is he would he would actually be great because he is really uh, talking about uh, affecting um, mental health due to in combat trauma with nutrition he would actually be a great guest for you carnivore mike foxtrot beautiful thank you no you know i don't recognize any of those names so those are four brand new people you brought to me so i really appreciate it great all right well then the last question for you make sure everyone knows where to find you online and find your podcast what do you do to decompress um to decompress i like going to the movies man and thank god we can go to the movies again um but I like going to the movies. The gym is great decompression for me. You know, I, I turn my phone on uh, airplane mode and put on music or a podcast or a book. And I, and I don't have to think about anything else. And, and because I have headphones in, people aren't talking to me. Um, those are really the things I do to decompress. Brilliant. All right. Well, then for people listening that want to follow you online, that want to find your podcast, want to find out, um, you have got, for example, uh, let me check my notes here. God is a bullet coming out. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know when exactly, but God is a bullet is coming out. And um, 
a movie called Babylon and another movie called Manodrome. Brilliant. So where are the best places for people to find you and all of all of that work? Uh, Ethan Suplee on Instagram. I'm not super active on Twitter, but I, I do have a Twitter account and the podcast I do is called American Glutton. Okay. And is, is it AmericanGlutton.com, the, the uh, website for that? Dot net. Dot net. AmericanGlutton.com, okay. somebody had taken. Assholes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Well, Ethan, again, I want to say thank you so much. The first conversation was incredible. This has been another unique perspective, you know, two years later, the other side of this, this strange couple of years that we've had. But, you know, I'm, I'm always so, so uh, grateful, for lack of a better word, that someone that's been through the journey that you have and you know let's be honest has the the visibility and and the 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 is pulled from many directions as you are that you would take time to speak to this audience today absolutely thank you james thanks for having me